You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Good morning to you all, and welcome to the 10 o'clock gathering. It's good to, good to see you. We're starting a new series today called God in Three to try to understand and wrap our minds around this triune God because God has introduced himself to us as a triune God. I, I think for probably most here today, probably most here today, you're, you're here and you would say, I, I love God. Like I... I love him. I love all that he has done. I love all who he is. I, I love God. Or rather, probably a more accurate thing would be you have responded yourself to God's love, therefore you, you love him. But if we were to go beyond the level of, yes, God is love, God sent his son, God gives grace, God offers new life, God offers salvation, do we really know God? What of him do we know? Let me just start off with this statement today. We speak fluently about the gospel, but not so much about the beauty of the God whose gospel it is. We speak fluently, I think, here at Highland about the gospel, the, the good news that Christ has come to forgive our sins and to give us life that lasts forever. That probably many in this room, maybe most in this room, I mean, almost all in this room probably could articulate at least some simplistic or foundational or basic form of, of the gospel or explanation of the gospel. But do we talk enough about the beauty of God whose gospel it is, who offers this good news, who offers this gospel, who distributes this gospel to, to all who believe? David writes, you don't have to look it up, it's on the screen behind me in front of you, Psalm 27, 4, one thing I ask of the Lord, all caps, meaning his name, of, of Yahweh, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house, there it is again, of the Lord, of Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, just to look on the beauty of Yahweh. The word there, gaze, is the Hebrew word kazad. It just means to behold something intently. Like to stare at it. It's not as if if we press into God too much, we're going to be disappointed. It's not as if if we gaze into his beauty and, and look at him, and if you will, just stare into the beauty of God, it's not as if we will find him troublesome or boring. Quite the opposite, if we look into the beauty of God, stare into the beauty of God, gaze at him, God actually becomes ever more beautiful and ever more powerful and ever more relational and even more, if it's possible, desirable. The more we look at him, he becomes even more near, more known, more transcendent, more, if you will, God. So many people go wrong in trying to explain the Trinity by using an object lesson. I, I grew up in church. I was at church all the time. My dad was my pastor. I had to be at church all the time. And I've heard many a horrible illustration about the Trinity. 
If you grew up in church, maybe you have, have, have heard the same. I've heard that the Trinity is like a shamrock. It's like one leaf with three clovers. How does that sit with you? God's like a leaf with, with three parts. I've heard before that God's like H2O, right? He's, he can be ice, warm him up a little bit. He can be liquid, heat him up a lot. He's gas, he's steam, but he's still all H2O. I've heard that horrible analogy before. I've heard that God's like a penny. And there's, there's one penny, but there's, there's two faces. Well, that, that always confused me as a kid because I, I thought Trinity meant, meant three. And so like, where's the, it must've been a Baptist penny. They left out the Holy Spirit. So just kind of the, the two sides of the, of the penny there. Hmm. I've heard that God's like, like an egg. I got three parts of the egg. You've got, you've got the yolk, you've got kind of the white fleshy part. You've got the shell. God's just like an egg, one egg, but the three different parts. Like seriously? Does that make you want to bow down and wonder at the, you know, the egginess of, of God? Like it's just a weird, weird illustration. So, so maybe this graphic on the screen will help, especially for you visual learners. It's better than eggs and steam and gas and, and shamrocks. It is an understanding maybe visually of who the Trinity is. Each part of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, each are fully God. In other words, God the Father is not one-third of God, neither is the Son one-third of God, or the Spirit one-third of God. There are not multiple gods, but one eternal God with three distinct persons, each of whom, listen, are fully God, each of whom is fully God. And there's no gradation. God the Father is not more God than God the Son or God the Spirit. God the Son is not more God than God the Father, God the Spirit. And scripture is very clear, especially in the Old Testament, where it probably made more sense contextually for the authors to write this. The Lord our God, he is one. One God with three distinct persons. There's one big question that you have to answer in life. In fact, I would submit to you it's the biggest question you have to answer in life. And here, here's that question. Who do you love the most? You may have to interchange that with what do you love the most? Like what, what do you love the most? Who, who do you love the most? Because the answer to that will shape the rest of your life. The answer to that question, who do you love the most or what do you love the most? It, it'll inform even your instincts. It'll inform all the other decisions you make. The answer to that question shapes how you answer every other question in life. Who is it that you love the most? What is it perhaps that you love the most? The answer to that question, who do you love the most, really kind of controls your existence. I assume, I think probably the majority in this room today would say, I, I love God the most. Maybe even you would want to say that. I that I love God the most. A.W.'s famous quote would probably fit right here. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because that determines every other part of our very existence. And so this morning and, and the next three weeks, we need to answer 
really this question, does what I think about God match up with God says about God? Or do I consider God based on my understanding, limited as it may be, or my own desire for who God would be as opposed to how God reveals himself to us? Because listen, there's only one view that counts. And when God comes and introduces himself to us, he introduces himself to us as a triune God. And since I'm quoting dead people, how about this? Augustine says, nowhere is a mistake more dangerous or the search more laborious or the adventure more advantageous than studying the Trinity. So let's just kind of resolve this, that the Trinity is not a problem to be solved, but a God to be worshiped. And this God deserves our our affection. In fact, the the entirety, if you will, of Christianity, the Christian faith stands or falls on this concept of, of a triune God. We believe in the Trinity because the scripture describes the triune God to us. So let's get there. That was a long runway. Let's go to Ephesians chapter one. If you've been here the last five weeks, your ribbon is already there in Ephesians chapter six, probably. So just go back a few pages. Ephesians chapter one. Let's read this passage and keep our Bibles open to see what God would say to us today. I hope you did not come to hear a preacher. Let's come and hear what God would say to his people today. Ephesians chapter one, we'll let you get there. It's on the screen also. If you hopefully have your copy of God's word or a device with you, you can share with someone next to you. Ephesians chapter one, Paul writes, led by the spirit to God's people. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There's a lot of pronouns in there. We'll come back and unpack a little bit later. The Trinity is for our salvation, but the triune God also is for our joy. So we need to see today and these next coming weeks what the Trinity is, who the Trinity is, and why does it even matter for us as followers of Christ? Let's break it down and start with this. Note takers, God the Father, the first person in Christian history would traditionally say the first person in, in the Trinity. 
And we see him described, we see his actions described back in this passage. Hope your Bible's still open. I think I warned you to keep it open. Ephesians chapter one, look at verses three through six, and I'll help a little bit this time with the pronouns. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So right out of the chute, we already see the first and second person in the Trinity, God the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he, God, chose us in him, Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before God. In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons, as daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of God's will, to the praise of his, God's glorious grace, with which he, God, has blessed us in the beloved, which is Christ, who is Christ. So what does God the Father do when it comes, Christian, to our salvation? He initiates all divine action. He is the origin and he is the source of our rescue. He is the origin. He is the source of our salvation. Look at all these verbs of all the divine action of God the Father. We see in verse 3, he blesses. We see in verse 4, he chooses. We see in verse 5, he predestines. We see, we didn't read this, but we did earlier, but verse 8, he lavishes grace. Verse 9, he makes his plans known. Verse 11, here's another verb. He accomplishes all things. This, Highland, is the grace of God the Father. God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. This is a reminder that we do not initiate our salvation. God being so gracious, he chose you before you chose him. He loved you before he even thought you could love him. Know this about God the Father. You're not the source of of this divine action of salvation. God is. God the Father is. Now, some of you, perhaps your heads are swimming right now and thinking, man, this sounds like, like, like scary theological territory. Like I feel like I've heard people argue over this before. And yes, you have. But here's, here's, here's the joy of it, right? If you want some practicality of this, God is not passively sitting back wondering if you like him or not. God is not pacing the, the precipices of heaven right now thinking, I sure hope she likes me. I sure hope he likes me. You see, this is God initiating relationship with you. And this is so rich because it means God loves you. Some of y'all need to hear this. God loves you not based on you. He loves you not because of your behavior. He loves you because that's his character. You see, the Father initiates all divine Action, and this is also very important to know. God initiates your salvation, stay with me, but he does not accomplish it. God the Father did not put flesh on and enter into the stream of humanity in Bethlehem. God the Father did not hang on a cross and bleed out for our forgiveness. God the Father did not rise from the dead. He's the initiator of our salvation, but he does not accomplish our salvation. Hang on with me. I see some of your eyes. Don't believe this. Second, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Let's see what Scripture, let's see what God would say about his Son. God the Son. Let's read verse 7 through verse 10. I'll help again with the, with the pronouns here. In him, Christ, you see this on the screen, in him, Christ, we have redemption through Christ's blood. 
Not the Father's blood, but Christ the Son's blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace, which he, God, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his, God's will, according to his, God's purpose, which he, God, set forth in the Son, Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, and this is Jesus right here, to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and the things on earth. So what does God the Son do when it comes to our salvation? He accomplishes our salvation. This is why we see these, these, these thoughts here. And you'll see this on the screen as well. In Christ, we have, verse seven, redemption. In Christ, verse eight, we have forgiveness. In Christ, verse 9, basically we have clarity. It was once a mystery. God was, the Father was once a mystery to us. He, he, was, he was residing in unapproachable light. But now Christ has made, Christ the Son, God the Son has made God the Father clear to us. And in verse 10, really that uniting of things on heaven, things on earth is a reminder that Christ, God the Son, is the mediator. He is the gate. He is the door. He is the road. He is the way to God the Father. I don't have time today to unpack all those words. Let me just unpack verse seven, the, the word redemption. Redemption means that you were bought out of slavery. What, what was the payment? What was the currency? We see it in verse seven, his blood, the blood of God, the son, Christ, Jesus. His blood was the payment. His blood was, was the currency. You see, we were slaves to sin, just like the Israelites were slaves to the Egyptians. But then we were bought. I'm not saying brought, I'm saying bought. We were bought out of slavery and then given the right, not just purchased, but then given the right to be called the daughters and the sons of God through the purchase of Christ's life. This is really good news for every Christ follower here, here today, but it, but it also has implications. It, it means, ready for this? I, I don't think some of you are. It means that you are not your own but you've been purchased. You've been bought with the currency of the blood of Christ. It means, good news, that your life does not belong to sin anymore or, or the, the, the penalty of sin anymore. And we, we cheer that, but it also means that your life does not belong to you. It belongs to Jesus. So your mind, your thoughts, your creativity, your giftedness, your skill sets, your testimony, and watch out, your money doesn't belong to you, but belongs to Jesus because he redeemed you. He bought you. He purchased you by his very lifeblood. And you know the other implication to that? Your body does not belong to you, but belongs to Jesus. So Christian Jesus does get to say with overwhelming love for you what you can do with your body, your sexuality. Listen carefully. Sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, adultery, pornography, those are not morality issues for Christians. They are ownership issues. Who do I belong to? I don't belong to me. As a Christian, Jesus owns 
your body. If that makes you want to close your ears or walk out of here or turn off the live stream, please hear me before you do. Jesus instead has a beautiful, perfect, life-giving plan lined out for your life, which is actually his life, and your body, which is actually his body. Would you for just a moment see the other side of this with me? When we think our life is our life and our body is our body, we make really ugly decisions. Decisions that hurt us, that scar us, that scare us. A Christian, if you were to realize that your life actually belongs to Jesus and your body actually belongs to Jesus and that he has perfect plans, pleasing plans for you, then you can live in the safety of God's love. Because it's not your life. I don't know about you, I don't do well when I'm controlling my own life. I don't know about you. I don't shepherd myself very well. I need a shepherd. This sheep needs a shepherd. So God, through Christ, has accomplished our salvation. It was through God the Son. Jesus has accomplished our salvation, which means we cannot accomplish our own salvation. Christian, listen, you, you started in grace. Please continue in grace. And don't try to wrestle away your life or your body or your salvation from Jesus. You cannot add to what Jesus Christ, God's Son, has already accomplished for you. God the Spirit. Verses 13 through 14 of this passage. I'll help with the, pre with the prepositions, the pronouns again. Verse 13 and 14. In him, Christ, you also, so Christian, listen, here's your story. When you heard the word of truth, just think about when you heard the word of truth. Maybe it's a child, maybe a few months ago, maybe this morning. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation, and believed in him, believed on the Son, Jesus Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is, so Holy Spirit's not an it, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of God's glory. God the Spirit, what does he do? He makes our salvation permanent. He seals it. This is why we see, little parenthetical statement, I think that's on, your, on the slide, the Spirit is, verse 13, promised. So Christian, if you're wondering today, do I have the Holy Spirit? Let me ask you this question. Have you believed upon Jesus? If the answer to that is yes, you have the Holy Spirit. He has sealed those who have believed upon his name. This is what we see right here in verse 13. And verse 14, he is a guarantee for our inheritance. Let me just make sure on the same page. When do you get the Holy Spirit? When do you get God the Spirit? When do you get the third person of the Trinity? Verse 13 tells us when we hear the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and we believe in Christ, we are sealed in the Holy Spirit with the promised Holy Spirit. He is promised. He, not it. He is promised to every believer in Christ. So the Spirit's role before your salvation, you know what that was? Was to point you to Jesus. Jesus said this in the Gospel of John. The, the, the role of the Spirit is to bear witness of Christ. Which is kind of fascinating. You know his role, the Holy Spirit's role after your salvation? Pretty much the same thing. To point you to Jesus and to remind you of everything Jesus taught us and everything Christ has given to us. To remind you, if you will, verse 14, of your inheritance. How do we know if the revival at Asbury is real, is valid, is credible? 
How do we know if the revival at, at Baylor, at, at A&M, at MCC, in Uganda, I've seen pictures, the Philippines, I've seen pictures. How do you know that is a move of the Holy Spirit? Here's the very clear answer. Jesus will be the center. Not music, I love music. Not silence, I actually don't like silence, but it's not silence. It's not, it's not just emotions. Emotions aren't bad, but they can definitely be very deceiving. You know, prayer is good, but that's not the evidence of a revival. Jesus will always be the center of true revival. Want to know the fruit of revival, the fruit of the Spirit? The Spirit is always going to bear witness to Jesus Christ. So if the star of a revival is a preacher's name or the star of a revival is a university's name or the star of a revival is a church's name, it ain't real. Bad grammar, good theology. And it's not going to last. The Spirit will always point us back to, to Jesus, even after our salvation. So the Spirit promises us our inheritance. You see that in verse 14? That the treasury that belongs to Jesus is also the treasury that belongs to us. An inheritance is not given to a slave, but to a daughter and to a son. Here's my best explanation, if you will, of that inheritance as I wrap up today. Three things. Your past is Christ's past. Your present is Christ's present. Your, your future is is Christ's future. This, for every believer in the house today, watching online today, listening later on this week, this is your inheritance because you have the same inheritance as Christ the Son, as God the Son. Let me explain this. Your past is Christ's past. Think about the past of Christ, the, the life of Christ. Christ was crucified. Christian, you've been crucified. Before you lived in Christ, you died in Christ. Galatians 2.20, for I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. In this life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith, faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. Let me just tell you the first part again. I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. You see, Christ's past is also our past. Our old self is dead, but your present is Christ's present. In other words, God made us alive with Christ. Jesus was raised up, you have been raised up. Christ rose to God, you have risen to God. Let me prove this to you biblically. You're in Ephesians chapter one, it's maybe on the same page, maybe go one page over to the left. It's not on the screen, it is in your Bible. Ephesians chapter two, and look at verses five and six. Nay, I'll start in verse four. Verse four, five, and six. So Ephesians two, five through six, but God, two great words, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us, not just Jesus, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And God raised us up with him and seated us up with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christ rose to God and Christian, you have risen to God also. Your present is also Christ's present. But catch this. Lastly, your future is Christ's future. Christ conquered death and was resurrected. There is nothing unique about the resurrection of Jesus. Before you toss things at me, let me explain this. There is nothing unique about Jesus' resurrection. It's just that he was the first to be resurrected. Christian, we're going to follow him into resurrection. 
So his future is our future. Your, your future is death conquering. Your future is resurrection centered. This is our guaranteed inheritance. Jesus just rose first. There is one day around the cemeteries of the world going to be some happening things because we're going to follow him into resurrection. Highland, how permanent is your salvation? Christians at Highland, how permanent is your salvation? How much are you his? How held are you? How secure is your salvation? How secure are you? Well, triply secure. Initiated by God the Father, accomplished by God the Son, and sealed permanently by God the Spirit. Here's what I'm trying to say, Christian, you're set. You're set to live a life of victory, of freedom, and of joy. Because we are drawn and known and loved and forever held by a triune God. Would you stand with me, please? And let's pray together. God, we want to know you and the richness of who you are, the fullness of who you are. God, today in these weeks ahead, we want to dig deep into who you are so we can worship you rightly for who you really are. Not our image of God, but God, how you reveal yourself to us through scripture, through the spirit. You are the great and mighty God. God the Father, when you revealed yourself in the Old Testament, there was lightning and thunder. Mountains were shaking. But you're also the same God who calls us to draw near to you. What a God. God the Son, you put on flesh, went to my cross, went to the cross of many people here in this room to die the death we should have died. And then Jesus, when you ascended to the right hand of the Father, you did not leave us as orphans. You gave us God the Spirit to remind us of everything you told us and taught us. Praise the triune God who initiated, accomplished, and now has permanently sealed our salvation. We're set. We're set to worship you in spirit and in truth, with joy, with delight, bowing down before this God. In Christ, the Son, we pray, enabled by God the Spirit. Amen. You may want to use this next song, song and a half speak to the Lord, to talk to the Lord. Maybe you want to come and just kneel before this God. I mean, how long has it been before you knelt before God and realized the fullness of, of who he is? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. If you can't remember the last time you knelt before him, today would be a great time to kneel before him. And this altar is open. We also have staff members here at the front. They'd love to pray with you. Maybe a situation in your life, a circumstance, maybe a celebration. We encourage you, come and, come and pray with us or come and kneel here at the front. We'll pray over you. Let's meet the triune God during this time.